0: All right. Well, welcome again to the OFM podcast. And on the heels of Dr. Kathy, we've got the real world scientist Jeff Browning here today. And I want to call him a real world scientist because that's what we do. I mean, myself, Jeff, Kathy, we're, we're actually putting putting this concept and the products around it. Uh, into practice and developing it so and that's that's kind of a different thing from the published science where we control everything we're 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 trying to control the variables and look at one thing but um as jeff well knows from his career as racing there's there's a lot of variables in the mix and they're all moving constantly so welcome jeff Um, thank you peter good to be back yep yeah i think this is going to be a great conversation today uh we've got lots of lots to uh, lots of rabbit holes to go on but um, for those who don't know Jeff Bronco Billy Browning he is a professional ultra runner and arguably in the top five of the elite mountain uh, ultra specialists at the 100 mile plus distance <clears throat> uh, certainly in the top 10 but based on his finishes I would say the top five He's just coming off the heels of running uh, the Moab 240s. This is his first attempt at the um, 200 mile plus distance. Is that correct, Jeff?
1: Yeah, that is my first time going that far. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I, I can hear the enthusiasm for it in your voice. <laughs> it was a right? long way. <laughs> And, and, but you know, you you managed to get through it with the win and the the course record on that particular course in spite of the heat, right?
1: Yep, I did. Um, so, I managed myself pretty well. I mean, I, I did I did make some mistakes, but that was part of that was just first time mistakes that I wouldn't probably repeat a second time.
0: Okay, so is this is this like having a baby? Something <laughs> you say you're a not, little you're bit. Not-
1: asked me when I finished at, when I was sitting in the chair with my ice, my feet in an ice bucket, will you do another one? And I was like, I think I like hundreds better, you know, but uh, after I've slept on it now, it's been, you know, two and a half weeks. I, I, I would probably do another one
0: for sure. But you do it Uh, a lot. You, 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 you'd leverage all you've learned off of this one.
1: Yeah, and there's some little like mecha- biomechanical things that I need to work on. It made me realize that I have a couple of weaknesses still in the chain that I need to kind of, kind of sort out. Um, and I think I know how to deal with them, but um, I, it made me. It just makes you a better runner to go that far because you you it, it it you know we always kind of joke as a coach. I always joke with my athletes like ultra run ultra running makes screams your weaknesses and uh i i definitely going over a going 200 plus definitely screams your weaknesses so if you have some weakness in your chain somewhere you it will show up so i think that was uh there were some eye-opening things in that there's some strategy stuff i like i like the distance because of because of the strategy the strategy so there's so much more ways to like dial in logistics and crew and it, it becomes pacers and like, there's so much more strategy, sleep deprivation and, and and sleep strategy, you know, cause everyone's a little different in how much sleep they want or how, how good they function in sleep deprivation. And so even hydration and electrolyte balance, you know, you and I've already chatted about this on a separate, just a side phone call about, you know, I I retained a bunch of water the first night because I kept my drink rate too high on the first night after the heat broke and I retained water. And then once you retain that water, it's hard to get rid of that extra water, you know, because I've had my sodium per liter test rate done. So I know what that is. And I have that pretty dialed in, but I did over drink the, the first night and then I retained water. And then from that point forward, the only way to get rid of it is to pee it out. And that takes forever.
0: Right. Uh, and that that's why I, I find that these sodium sweat tests are so mi- they're, they're so misleading because people do a test and they say, this is my sodium per liter water rate. A- and it's true at the time you take that test at under the conditions you're taking that test. Well, no,
1: right? no, no, no. no. I, I would even argue no. now we know that, that we have more data on that now. And yeah. one, of, one of the things we know about sodium per liter is we've had people retested it doesn't change. It's genetic. So one thing that the sodium per liter is genetic, but what is what is trainable is your sweat rate. So meaning how much liquid per hour you're dumping. And that's easy to test. Anyone can do that at home. They can go way naked, go for an hour run, don't pee, (laughs) go for an hour run, don't drink, don't pee and come back and towel off and weigh yourself naked again. If you lose a pound, you need to drink 16 ounces an hour in those conditions. So I, one of the things Absolutely. that I, one of the takeaways I've, I've come out of this from is I need to test, say in the taper, every time I taper in the, before a race, I need to test in the heat of the day and in the coldest part of the day. So That's two right. times during the day that I need to do that test. So that means I need to see what my height of heat conditions are at my dump rate and if that's say say two pounds that would be 32 ounces that would be a liter an hour basically And then if it was at early in the morning, like 5 a.m. when it's the coldest part of the day, if I went out and ran in 40 degrees or 35 degrees here in Flagstaff and in the early morning, and I only dumped a half a liter, you know, a pound, I lost a pound in an hour. Then so I can extrapolate that data based on the heat of the day versus the night. And then you can say, okay, well, the heat just broke at five or 6 p.m. going into the night. Well, maybe it's three quarters of a liter an hour, you know, and so you you can guesstimate, on that drink rate, and then you probably won't retain much water. And so I think there there's two pieces to hydration, at least the way I'm coaching it now. And that is, if you've had your test, we know what your genetic sodium dump rate is. That doesn't really change. What does well, change? Yeah, is sweat rate.
0: yeah, it, it's it, it's it's pretty stay. It's let's just say it's more stable because you you know you can change hormonal stuff and other stuff. As a, and that'll change it slightly, but you're right. That's a more stable thing, but the environmental conditions are so dynamic. And that's why, like I, I said to you, you know- You,
1: you got to back you, off on your
0: drink rate. Right, you got to consciously back off because when the heat breaks, your body's still thinking it's got to drink to maintain that really high sweat rate. But until those hormonal and enzymatic changes, like the, the, the vasopressin hormone and all these things shift, That takes a little bit of time and then all of a sudden you find yourself, like you said, retaining fluid and it it takes forever to dump.
1: Yeah, it, it it took days. So I was dealing with it the rest of the race and then I was dealing with it after the race for like two days before I really got it all peed out. So it just takes a long time once you retain that water. So the goal is to avoid doing that, right? So you don't have that extra water weight. One, you're carrying extra water weight. So even if you came into the race... Like lean mean fighting machine, you're now you're like you know five yeah. six pounds up, and you're like having to carry that uphill.
0: So well, and not only that, but that when you get into that, um, you start to get the potential for blistering goes up because you're retaining fluid in your feet, and it really does that too. Let's, yeah. Let's let's shift this a little bit because we're we're already going down the rabbit holes, right? Totally. Which is what we love to do when we get. Well, together. this was a lesson.
1: This was a lesson that I, I learned from running a yeah. 200
0: plus. Right and and this is the thing. So for those of you out there, uh Jeff just did the Moab 240 and it circles Moab. It literally circles Moab and it has everything from the desert, the high desert, red rock, uh where you, where there's nowhere to hide as you found out the first couple of days.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Don't <laughs> and, forget your SPF lip balm. Right, and then it goes up into the La Mountains where you get into some high altitude conifer and quaking aspen Uh, mountains and canyons and so and so the temperature swings can be pretty extreme and so this is what we we do with this is what we do with OFM and and Vespa this is what Jeff is a is really a a, an experiment of how we and the other team members like Peter Mortimer just did that backyard ultra we we kind of push those envelopes and we we learn a lot of really cool things from them and that's what we're going to be talking about is is all these cool things about pushing that envelope because this this really pushed your envelope because you were not only just trying your first 200 plus mile race but you were also uh gunning for the win which you got right yep yes yeah yeah i was trying to i was trying to get the course record so yep. i, I
1: might and
0: you I, did on that course
1: i did i did on the standard course that is the standard course record now courtney DeWalter had it and i got it by a little less than maybe 28 minutes or something like that, I think is what I ended up getting it by. Not very, not very much. She ran a solid race in 2017. So super impressive performance by her obviously. And that was um, one of her kind of like early kind of like, Whoa, who is this that's coming on the scene? That was before she's done a ton of winning and she'd already won some stuff, but she wasn't really on big, big on people's radar yet. And when she won that outright and just ran away with it that year, it was pretty impressive. And no one's yeah, even, got, no one's come close to that. I think Mike McKnight's come the closest at 59 hours and she was 57, 55. So she, no one had come close to, to really getting her record on the stage What was,
0: what was your, what was your time?
1: Fifty seven twenty seven. And I, I, in hindsight, like if I could figure out this, uh, I got it like, I got kind of like a brute, sort of a sore bruised second met head on my right foot And that was really um, the last like 50 miles was really affecting my downhilling. And so I, I did, I definitely was not running very well the last 40 or 50 miles. You know, I left, I left a lot on the course, you know, that in hindsight, if I could fix that issue, that's why I was talking about, you know, it screams your weaknesses and, and I've had that little bit of a, a meta, metatarsal soreness after at the end of hundreds a little bit on really rocky courses, technical courses. So I know there's something going on there and I have some theories on how to fix it at this point. So I'm working on that, but to, to avoid it in the future, because if I could have finished stronger, I, I real cause I still had the legs. My legs were still there. It's just my foot was my my weak point at that point.
0: So yeah, it's like when when Macaulay Gragley- uh ran and he he pulled that hamstring and it just totally blew his race
1: yeah and, and i think it's also just it's such a long race and there's so many little things that can go wrong and and 200s are hard to put them it's hard to nail them because there's so much there's so much room for error in in you know two and a half days or three days it's just you can you can miss one thing up and it slows you way down
0: so yeah and uh, there's a fatigue sets in the the potential for for things to go sideways it also goes up. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, let's 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 talk a little bit about, you know, first y- your race and 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 how you went through it and you know, besides these things with hydration and your metatarsal, you know, the heat, uh what you did and then we'll we'll segue into like things about how OFM how best how you use Vespa and how these things really allow you to do it by the way how is your recovery going now I know this uh, my legs more feel than- yeah my legs feel pretty good like I, I I
1: really managed the week after I really was pretty strict on diet and so that really helped like get rid of inflammation recover I just slept a lot I, I took five full days off after the race um, and like just slept ten or twelve hours a night, and was just really deep fatigued. Like you're just you're. I think because you missed sleep for a couple nights, you know. I just I I was really like just kind of t- just emotionally, spiritually, physically tired. And so I just I listened to that. I slept and I ate really really well. I didn't eat any junk for the first week. And then I, I woke, I kind of woke up. So I finished on a Sunday afternoon and that following Saturday, I woke up Saturday morning after like 11 hours of sleep. And I woke up without my alarm. I sat up in bed at like seven 30 in the morning on a Saturday. And I'm like, I'm going to go for a bike ride today and lift weights. So I got up, I went and did an hour bike ride on my gravel bike. And then I lifted weights, light, light dumbbell workout. If anybody follows me on Instagram, it's my tough 24 workout. I did that with really light weights and uh, um, I felt awesome after that. I was like, oh man, I flushed everything out. I was moving again. And I was like, I kind of felt normal again. And so then I was able to, I ran, I rode for four days, five days straight. And then on Tuesday, so this would have been about nine days, nine days after the race, I ran for my first time. I ran like a little over three miles. And I just ran easy. I went to my son's run club and ran easy with them. They did a workout but Iris jogged during the workout and because they were doing intervals and, and I just jogged through that and ran like a little like 3.3 miles or something and then I biked the next day and then I ran on two, Thursday again and I've run and then this last 13 days after the race after I finished the race, no excuse me. yeah, 13 days after I finished the race, I paced Mike McKnight on the Arizona Trail on Saturday for 20 miles. So 13 days after a 240. Now it was it was easy pace, obviously we're hiking a lot and it was a big climb day. So we were hiking a lot more, but I went and did 5,000 feet of climbing in 20 miles in about five hours and 45
0: minutes. Nice, nice, yeah. And, and it was effortless.
1: Yeah, I felt pretty good. I mean, I felt a little bit of like fatigue in my hips still a little bit and my, and my mid back from wearing a pack. Like I'm still a little tight. Like I got a massage last week and I still got a little bit of like a trap thing. I was in a bike wreck in 2011, like where I body checked the back of an SUV and a roundabout at like 20 miles an hour and broke a rib and broke my hand and uh, on my left side. And so there's some like imbalances. There's going some on compensation. Mid. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, 20 plus years, of the graphic designer sitting at a desk with a, you know, working a mouse and being in a, forward head posture, um, before I started doing a standing desk, you know, that, that was, there's a lot of like, there's some imbalances there and tightness that is kind of chronic that I'm always fighting off a little bit. And the pack definitely aggravated that a little bit after the race. And I've been dealing with that right trap's been a little fired up. So, and I've been on the bike, which doesn't help the trap.
0: Um, no, no. Yeah. The, the two things in modern life that I tell athletes that are the kiss of death are sitting at a computer and riding a road bike.
1: Yeah, totally. And so those two things didn't help. And then I had to wear a pack with three liters of water, you know, to pace Mike in the desert. So so that was like another another kind of thing that was that was the only really things that were bothering me. Other than that, I mean my right metatarsal still that one met head is still a little tender towards the end of the run. It was a little tender, but it you know, now I'm
0: pressing on it and it feels okay. Like but this goes back to what you're saying that that you know, doing ultras, you know, for regular people, a 50 mile or a hundred miler, but for you, it brings out these things. So if you're paying attention, it's like, we can address these things.
1: Yeah. And that's what I'm doing. I'm addressing those things, but overall, like my legs feel pretty good. You know, I'm still, I think I'm still a little, you're not peaking. You're not
0: peaking yet.
1: (laughs) No, I can tell that adaptation isn't fully set in yet but I feel but pretty good is. you know. overall. Like I, I'm not like groggy or mentally tired anymore. That, that was only for about five days. Once I kind of caught up on sleep, I feel like everything kind of clicked again. So I've been kind of back with it and that's been good. Um, yeah. Are yeah. you, do you take naps? Uh, no. Um, I mean, if, if I don't get enough sleep at night, sometimes I'll take a quick power nap, yep. but that's very rare. You know, like we're talking like, you know,
0: maybe four or five times a year. Yeah, when you're when you're in one of these these deep recovery phases after a run, if you if you instead of hitting the coffee, hit the nap because that's usually what happens is like you know you go through your morning and late morning, early lunch, you'll have early early midday, you'll have a lunch or late breakfast, and then you'll hit that really tired phase, and and that's that, a lot of that has to do with your HGH kicking in because you get a you get a, a surge in HGH after these things as part of that whole thing when you're fat adapted. And yeah. so it's, I, you really want to go with that if you can, because it really leverages, you know, not just the recovery, but the, the, the super compensation, you know, the adaptive stuff. So
1: but I think I did, you were, I did take, I think I did take a nap or two the first week if yeah. I remember right. I it's kind of hazy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So. yeah, but see the fact that you were sleeping 10, 12 hours a night or or whatever you were sleeping, that's also part of that HGH surge. And you're gonna continue that for the next week or so. I mean, for a 240, it's probably a two or three week process. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm ready to train again.
1: Like, yeah, hard. And then I'm still not like super motivated to train hard yet. Like I'm just trying, I'm just get- I'm I'm I like getting out every day. So I've just been getting out and just kind of going with it. Like yesterday I only ran like four and a half miles. You know, I I just it was like 45 minutes and I just went really easy and and just went for an easy trail run. So I'm I'm not really training hard or anything. Obviously, it's only been, you know, two and a half weeks, but I'm back kind of running regularly again.
0: Let's kind of run through the the Moab 240 about your, you know, you know, kind of give us a a, a hundred. Uh, a 10, 000, a 40,000 foot overview of how it went in terms of the conditions, the fueling, okay. kind of pacing, you know, stuff like that. And, yeah. and, and then we'll dive into a few more specifics.
1: I mean, I think uh, overall, like I went into this, like wanting to get the course record, you know, part of me, you know, was like telling behind the scenes was telling myself, is this smart to go after the course record when you've never run one before? But I also felt like I had coached it enough that I, I understood it on paper and I felt like I had a pretty good strategy going to it. I had a good crew and, um, and I, I felt like it was it within my wheelhouse to get it. So you you uh, had the basics. Yeah, I had the basics. And so I just, what I did was just ran comfortably the whole first day. I just tried to constantly relax. I still probably ran the first hundred a little too hot. I ran 20 hours and six minutes for the first hundred and um, in the
0: context, what was the temperature like? It oh.
1: was it. was hot. So, this was the hottest three first three days they've ever had in history of the race. Now they've had a hotter first day um, on record in 2020. They had a really hot record-breaking first day, but then it cooled off on Saturday and Sunday. So, but we had consistent heat for three days. So for my three days. It cooled off by Monday a little bit, but it was hot every day. So you know, I think the hot the, the forecast was in the upper 80s or the 80s, mid 80s in Moab. But if you get down in that where you head south into the into like towards Indian Creek, that area is really dark rock. It's that dark red rock, and it's really exposed. And you're running south into the sun. So the first day was really hot. It was really exposed. I mean, I had everything I managed. Well, I covered up with like white arm sleeves and I had like a bandana hanging out of my hat. I obviously didn't manage my lips very well because I forgot SPF lip balm and I got second degree burns on my bottom lip, which I'm still paying a a little bit for. But uh, that was a big oversight. But then overall, I felt good. I managed myself well. I drank enough. I drank enough that first day. I didn't get dehydrated. You know, I was carrying three to four liters, depending on the section. That's a lot lot
0: of fluid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot of fluid because some of you have a 22 mile section in that day with only no crew and no aid station. So you just have a water stop and then you have a 22 mile section and a water stop and then an then crew. So or an aid station, excuse me. So like it's a huge section. 22 miles running into the sun in the heat of the day for me up front. And so I I drank four liters through there because that's a, that's a long section. I think it was a four hour section. So I was drinking a liter an hour. And then uh, I went into the night, managed the night pretty well. It's a really technical section down through like the, the Island and you run down in this ravine. And then you finally, eventually are climbing, I took a little three-minute nap on the climb up Shea Mountain, which is like 8,500 or over 8,500 feet, I think. But you, you go up into the Aspens and Pines again, up into some high, higher mountain stuff. Uh, and so climbing up that, I was a little tired early in the morning, like 6 a.m. before dawn. Took a little dirt nap for like three minutes. I looked at my watch, crashed out, got cold, sat up. It only been three minutes. But then I got moving, and I was moving really well after that, after I took a like three-minute power nap. And then uh, went through that aid station, picked up a pacer, went out back down into the desert. We descend back down into the desert to head north towards the La Salles. And that's a pretty long, dry section. Like it's big. Uh, you drop down into the valley by 140. And then you have a, a kind of a marathon gravel road section
0: that's roly gravel road. I definitely know. Yeah, I know, I know through- that section. I've paced, I paced a guy there in the middle of the night.
1: I was I was running it in the afternoon so it was Saturday second day it was hot wow. I was sick of the sun I was sick of the heat at that point I was a little pissy in that section just with a, <laughs> I, my buddy Derek was pacing me and we were I, I was I was a little little complaining just a touch I was pretty quiet but I just wasn't super stoked on that section I also had quit caffeinating in the afternoon with a planned sleep at 167. In the evening, I quit caffeinating. In hindsight, I didn't need to because one of the things I found was in that once you get sleep deprived, for me at least, three hours is, is I've already metabolized the caffeine, it's gone, and I'm ready to sleep. So, But I, I gave myself six or seven hours, and so I really struggled that two or three hours coming into 167, the last two or three hours of that road. I was just weaving on the road. I kept talking about like i need need like a three minute nap i need a nap i just kept thinking about a three minute nap and i finally got to that aid station slept 30 minutes went into the left there right at dusk to head up into the lasalle's for the night in night two and uh i needed three five minute dirt naps from 167 to 201 um is that the one at the base
0: of the high point of the lasalle's
1: so that's at the very base on the highway, Highway 46, Road 46. Right,
0: where, right, right, right.
1: So I hit okay. that's a big aid station. I I slept there. That's for a huge minutes. one, yeah. Yep, we geared up for the night and went. And I had a pacer. My buddy Jean was a pacer, and he uh, he paced me up through that section to Geyser at 201. Okay, so that's right.
0: That's I the one at the base nap- of the high point.
1: Yeah, I needed, a high, I needed a nap, like three, I think three five minute naps through that section, like here and there, dirt naps. Like anytime I'd really start struggling and like slowing down, I would just say, Hey, dude, I need a nap. And I would take five minutes and I would be, boom, moving again really, really well. So I, I kind of really learned that like to go with it when your body's like, I just need to sleep. You just take five minutes, reset, boom, you're moving really well again for a couple hours. So That was a really long section. It was cold. We went through, you know, that's kind of the high point of the course. When you get to Geyser, it's almost 10.
0: So you have the one at that big aid station at the base of the La Salle. Yeah. And then you
1: go up to, you go up to Pole Canyon and then you climb and then you go Pole Canyon from Pole Canyon to Geyser is a 14 and a half mile section in the La Salle. And that is a tough section. It's overgrown a little bit. It's very very narrow it's like primitive trail it doesn't there's get a lot of traffic. there's a lot
0: of really tight canyons with switchbacks
1: yeah it's See, that's just where- traversing around south mountain to the west so it's working around the southwest side of the mountain and over to the west side of the mountain and then eventually you're traversing and then you and then you gain a, a gravel road and climb a mile and a half up to geyser at 201 and, and I hit that, I hit Geyser at like 6 a.m., so it was like an hour before dawn, and it was, it's the coldest part of the morning, and it was 20, my crew said their truck said 27 degrees at Geyser, and there was probably a 20 mile, 15, 20 mile an hour wind coming down slope off the peak. Ooh. So like when I hit the road, we were, we were protected as we were traversing in the trees, but once we hit that road for the mile and a half climb up to the aid station, I got really cold there. And that was a lesson too. Like, you know, even if you're a, only a mile from the aid station, if you're cold, you better stop and put another layer on. But I was like, I, I, had, I had shed a layer during the night in, in that traverse because we were working so hard. And yep. once I hit that road, I just had wind right in my face. It's 27 degrees. I'm getting a, a, a headwind coming down the mountain off the cold peaks. Right, coming off twelve, thirteen thousand, twelve thousand feet, twelve thousand foot peaks, and it's just, it's just the wind chill factor is probably in the teens. So that gives you the the temperature range for that race. Like you know, you're probably looking at teen wind chill factor in, in, in night in the, if you're in the La and then you got nineties in the desert. So you know, it was gnarly section. Like I just was well, so well. Cool. I also
0: think I also think from where you start into the steep part of the La Right, you go. You go from that base camp after that flat section up to that next camp. And then from there, all the way to that place on the Red Rocks where you climb up to the aid station and you start that. I think that that's where the course is GPS correctly. But I think in terms of the actual distance, it's there's several miles more there.
1: I think so, too. I mean, that was 14 and a half miles.
0: Mentally yeah. It's two, way more than that. <laughs> I can tell you. Well,
1: it's 14 and a half miles and it took me over six hours and yeah. I mo- I was moving well the whole yeah. time. Like I was power hiking hard and I, you know, so I like, we couldn't really, now I would say this, we were, weren't able to run the downhills very well in that section. Some of it was overgrown or there was enough, Yeah, there was enough, uh, uh, uh aspen leaves on the ground. And they were reflecting our light because it rained that afternoon and afternoon thunderstorm had come through. And so everything was soaking wet. And so it was like reflecting weird light. And you couldn't see the roots and rocks very well because it was kind of covered up. So there was a lot of like, you know, jog a little hike, a technical section on the downhill, uh, jog a little. And it's very overgrown on the west side because there's an old burn there. And the yep. aspens are coming back in like sapling size, like three to four feet tall. They still had leaves on them in that section. So they, it was just, you couldn't even see the trail. You're bushwhacking. Well, not even,
0: yeah, not to mention you have to be looking for the markers in the trail because it's easy to get off course there.
1: Yeah, totally. But, so but, that- but,
0: but just so so the audience knows, like I did some uh, back in the nineties, I I pioneered bringing the uh, GPS to the aerial application industry in, in Latin America. and what people don't know is like in those, especially those north facing canyons where there were a lot of switchbacks, you probably they probably aren't picking up satellites when they measure that so the GPS takes the what last coordinate and goes to the next coordinate picks up so it's going to draw a straight line. Yeah. And, and so, a lot of times I know Candace said she's measured those areas three or four times but on a GPS as narrow and, and, and as those canyons are and the way they're facing. I think it's a common, yeah, you go slow because it's high and it's, it's, you can't see and you, and it's technical and you got the quaking aspens. But I, I think there's more than two or three miles of, of tre- you know, two or three at least that are there that it's not covered in the GPS.
1: I would guess that too. And I would also say that um, it's pretty heavy tree cover. There's a lot of pines and a lot of aspens in there. and yep. uh, and, and it's pretty thick in spots. And a
0: lot of switchbacks in some of those canyons.
1: Now, there's a ton of switchbacks. Tons of little switchbacks too, where it's like yeah. five, 10 meters and, and, and you're constantly just weaving. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure that the, the GPS isn't picking that up fully. So I got through that section. I got up to the aid station. I was pretty cold there. I took a I asked for a 15 minute nap. They put me in the van, covered me up. I put dry layers on. And I slept, they gave me 13 minutes cause I was on course record pace. So they told me they'd give me 15 and gave me 13 and kicked me out. But I, I got up, I, they had to put hot water bottles on my chest to get me warm. I was still cold after the nap and I got layered up, put down on tights, put all my layers on and left there fully bundled. We'd put hand warmer packets in like a chest pocket next to my heart. We had hand warmer pockets, hand warmer packets in my gloves, and i left there like with a pacer and to the finish and the last whatever 30 38 miles and I, within an hour i was shedding layers and was warm again but it you know cuz dawn hit and, and it started to slowly warm up and i was moving i was moving well after the nap i ran that section pretty well down past Ua lake and and down to head towards porcupine the last aid station the, mm-hmm. the start of porcupine rim and then my, that's when my foot kind of, the gravel road section in that, my foot started bothering me. And that's when I, through the rest of the race, the foot was kind of there. I finally taped it with like seven miles to go. Like I, I, I got, a, I had a little blister kit, mini blister kit on me and I, I put like a compede patch pad. Was that, like was that before or after Hidden one.
0: Valley? What's that? Was that before or after Hidden Valley?
1: That's, uh, so that's like the last, 38 so from from geyser you climb just a little bit and then you go down through you're dropping out of the Sals and traversing a little bit and then right. you finally hit you get over near Warner Lake and you drop just below Warner Lake and the campground and you hit a gr- the gravel road that accesses Warner Lake and you mm-hmm. drop that gravel road all the way down to that loop highway that comes up high in the Sals. Mm-hmm. that's above Porcupine Pine Rim. We we hit that. We run the road for just a little bit. Jump on another gravel road, and we work gravel all the way over to Porcupine Rim, and then we drop into Porcupine Rim, and that's the last aid station. So that's way after Dry Valley. Dry Valley's like 140, um, 140 to 1, like that 140 to 160 range. Uh, might,
0: they might have changed the course or something because the course, you know, you drop down off the, you know, the red the red rock down to the Colorado River. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's Porcupine Rim. So you you drop Porcupine Rim, you you work your way over to Porcupine Rim, and then you run Porcupine Rim down to the Colorado River, and the Colorado River back up into town, to the north end of town, and it finishes in the north end of town. So if you, yeah, they've changed the course like a little bit, the start finish. It used to start on the south end of town. And now it, now it finishes and starts on the north end of town. So you run through town early in the morning and get all that out ah, of the way.
0: Ah, okay, okay. So yeah, because when I did it, when I paced and crude in 2017, it there was an aid station there at the north end of town on the Colorado River in the park.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's where it finishes now. And it used to... So now that first... Where you started that year, where they started in 2017... That was way
0: out aid. on Cane Creek Road. The yeah, start. that's
1: the first aid station.
0: Ah, Okay.
1: Oh, way south on the south end of town. So you run that. You run that. Uh, I can't remember what that's called. The,
0: there's a the, there's a pipeline. pipeline. And you climb up, climb up to Hidden Valley. Go out Hidden Valley. Come down the Red Rock, and then yeah, go yeah. up so, the road. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So
1: that now you start on the north end of town. You run pipeline all the way down, and then you climb up to Hidden Valley.
0: Okay. Right?
1: Up to Hidden Valley, and then you work your way over to Massa Back.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the
1: start. So that's the start now. That's not, that's not any kind of a finish. So they used to finish on the South end of town, 2017. Courtney would have finished on the South end of town. You had to run pipeline at the end.
0: That's right. Yeah. You ran pipeline up hidden Valley and then you came, then you worked your way North and then down this four wheeler red rock, you hit the road and ran the road in.
1: Yeah. So now, so now it's that way. So that, that was, um, so once I hit pipe or once I hit, uh, from like porcupine on the way to porcupine and in, I, my foot was really bothering me. So it really slowed me down. I, yeah, that I, had,
0: that had to, cause that's a long downhill to the river.
1: It's long. And I, I, I even at one point, <laughs> I, at one point I was like, it hurt to go slow. So I decided I was going to run hard. And because if it hurts to go slow, it's going to hurt to go fast. I might as well just go fast. So I like started doing like steady state effort because my legs were still there. So I just started hammering like probably two or three, seven minute interval sessions with like some hydration and food in between. And a Vespa. And yeah. And a Vespa. And I about half an hour, probably half an hour, 45 minutes of that. And then I was like, oh, my God, I started like. My foot was really like flaring up at that point. And so I started taking a bunch of hike breaks. I was getting kind of really low mentally. I was in the heat. The heat was beating on me. You know, your third day of heat and cause it was like midday. And so, and you're still up on top is where I dropped down into porcupine rim. So you're still up on the top of the rim. And so you're really exposed in there and it was hot and there's no shade. And there's finally like one little tiny tree, little juniper that I sat under it was seven miles to go and I retape. I, I took my sock and shoe off and I put a compi patch on the med head second med head on my right foot and then put a piece of tape over that to hold it in place just hoping it would pad it a little bit or and and that was enough to like ch- distribute the weight differently on my foot so it went from like a nine out of ten pain to like a six out of ten and when you've had a nine out of ten And all of a sudden you have a six out of 10. You're like, oh my gosh, that feels so much better. And so then I could run. I just couldn't lead with that foot on downhills. So I had to like, you know, always lead with the right left foot on downhills to like weight it and push off on up any stair steppy stuff. It went uphill. I'd have to like, you know, push off on my left foot. And so I always had to kind of baby the right foot a little bit. So that allowed me to run again, though. And so that got me to the finish. And then I was like, I was pretty, I was pretty worked afterwards. Like that foot was pretty, pretty sore. Like I couldn't really weight it. I actually cut up a pair of my, uh, ultra Mont Blanc Boa into slides. So like I cut the toe off the heel off and made it into a pair. I'd forgotten. I forgot my, my, uh, Crocs, you know, for post-race, like, you know, when your feet are really gnarly, you want either slides or Crocs or something that nothing's touching it, touching yeah. your toes or your feet, you know, and, and I'd forgotten that to bring them. And so I got back and I was like, oh man, all I had was like zero sandals. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I can't write, I need padding. So I like cut up my boas and, and went and bought an aftermarket arch support insole. <laughs> at like the general store in Moab and put that in and that helped distribute the weight off my metatarsal head. Wow.
0: For recovery. What, what shoes were you wearing? I, you, I know you run for ultra. So which which ultra model were you?
1: Uh, I first 70, 70 miles, 71 miles. I ran in the um, Mont Blanc BOA, the new BOA shoe lacing system. I, I ran in that shoe and then I switched to a temp four it's a prototype with a little bit of um a different foam in it. So I I uh that we're experimenting with right now at innovation in the innovation team is so I had two pairs of that shoe in two different colors. So I ran in the temp four through uh pretty much to 140, 71 to 140. I ran in the temp four. Then I switched to the, to the Olympus for that marathon section on the road. I was Makes really sense. not liking that shoe. I don't run that shoe very often, but I was thinking oh, I just need cushion. But I I really was annoyed by that shoe the whole time, unfortunately. And then I switched back to the Temp Four, the other Temp Four I had, and and finished out the race from 167 to 239.
0: So yeah, yeah, the the Olympus. I I've never worn the Olympus, but I got one of the first pairs of Torrens when they put the Torren out. And it, it, my description of it, it's like driving around in an old nineteen sixty seven Ford Galaxy five hundred. Yeah, know, I mean the
1: new the new Olympus is really actually pretty good. I mean I like it for like recovery days when I'm kind of beat up. I've run in it and and but for some reason it was just a little too stiff for me. Like at that point in the race, I wanted something softer, like just softer upper. You know, yeah. I just wanted more 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 give and it was just too stiff for me and like and it just kind of annoyed me the whole time you know and it and I think you know was that was my main shoe but my the temp four is the one I mainly run in um and the the boa those two shoes and so I I think you know in hindsight the temp four was like the shoe I should run in the whole time you know but because that's what that didn't cause me any issues but anyway Point, point. being, I switched. I went through a lot of different shoes through that race, um, and ended up liking the Temp Four the best.
0: And and just so the audience knows, Jeff and I are are parsing through the nuances of each shoe. We're not bagging on the ultras. We're both actually big believers on them. Uh, Jeff's not you not just sponsored by by Ultra because he's sponsored by Ultra. He's sponsored by Ultra because he believes in the the philosophy and the shoe design. I do. I do yeah, believe in I mean, zero
1: drop and foot shaped toe box and natural foot function.
0: Absolutely, um, I, I I I actually saw the first Lone Peak, the prototype Lone Peak, when they had it back in 2008 or 2009, and I immediately got on board with them. And and I still have my original pair of Lone Peaks. Those things were bomb. They were clunky, but they were bomb proof.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they they that's it. They they were they were a, actually a pretty good little shoe. I really got turned on to them in the, uh, when it was the Lone Peak 2. That was kind of my first favorite shoe was the Lone Peak 2. And I came on in 2015, uh, is when I started running for them, uh, and have been with them ever since. So, yeah. um, I've actually been approached by a couple other brands, but I put, I put a, some kind of a heel like a a drop on. And I like, I'm like, I can't run in the shoe and something with like a narrower toe box. It's just like shuts off your big toe, you know, and then you're like in a drop. So you got like a high heel, hate it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you never know right now, because if you know, look at the shoes right now, they're, they're all getting wider on the toe box. It used to be really pointy. And now everybody's shoes get wider. Yeah.
1: Everybody's and and athletes are asking for it. You know, that's one thing. I know a couple of Solomon athletes that are you know, asking for wider toe boxes in Solomon shoes, you know, for ultras. Cause yeah, yeah. You know, fire, it's fine fire. for like fast mountain running when you're gonna bomb downhill to hold your foot in place for like a you know, a 15k. But if you're gonna run a 50k or a hundred K or a 200 miler, you need some foot, you need toe box room.
0: Well, yeah, and it's it's to get the you know, the toes and the the forefoot to splay out so that you're distributing the the load across the footbed, which is what the zero drop concept the big toe box do because like you're saying earlier that those weaknesses show up you know you can run a 5k or a 15k in a in a crampy shoe but not a yeah. 50k yeah
1: not not a long long race especially
0: not too yeah. so so now that you've done that let's let's talk about your 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 fueling your hydration i mean we talked about all the water you're drinking but we also did we didn't talk about the electrolyte uh stuff the the fueling you did, I mean, how many calories you used, when you used them, how did you use Vespa?
1: I was, I was pretty much on about 200 calories an hour uh, for most of the race. I would eat protein after from 71 miles on, I ate protein when I saw crew
0: burger, Uh, like like
1: they were making me my own food because uh, I have a soy allergy and I was worried about, what they were cooking with like a lot of those A stations will use like pam you know like spray on cooking yeah. oil and that's like seed oils and it has soy in it soybean oil in it and i'm not i'm not i didn't want to consume that so my crew like made me my own food we pre-made a bunch of mashed potatoes with just butter uh with gold potatoes and butter organic gold potatoes and butter and sea salt nice and we put them in a ziploc or in in a uh, not in ziploc uh uh like Tupperware containers and kept them in a cooler and they would just heat it up on a quick camp stove skillet. And then I, they'd mix some hamburger with it, some grass fed hamburger. And I would eat, I ate that earlier. And then later as I got farther into the race, I actually didn't want the burger anymore. It was too heavy. I wanted just eggs like scrambled eggs and, and mashed potatoes. So I mainly did uh, my own like uh, kettle and fire, uh, chicken bone broth with extra sea salt in it. With Redmond real salt, and then so I had. They always had a mug of that, of warm broth. They always had a mug of coffee, like aeropress coffee with some heavy whipping cream, and then they had uh, usually a container with eggs and mashed potatoes or eggs and hamburger, and I would just eat that. And then at any backcountry aid stations, if I wanted protein, I asked for eggs and I asked them to cook it in butter, just because I saw they had Pam and I like I can't have the Pam. I'm allergic to something in that please, do you have butter or anything? And they, they were completely accommodating as long as I asked. And then that's really, that's really all I consumed during the race was protein. When I saw crew mainly focused on protein and carbs from, from potatoes.
0: So and you were averaging up. about you, when you say you're 200 calories an hour, so that was an average, including all that food.
1: Uh, yeah, that was probably an average over the whole, I mean, I haven't figured up exactly because it's hard to remember what, how much you eat, consume at when you're with crew. But if you look at like what I was doing on an IV drip in between those big checkpoints, you know, it was probably about 200 calories an hour, sometimes maybe a little less. And then I, you know, some during the heat of the day, I mainly did just really simple foods like, like fruit. Like I did you know a little bit of banana or melon or something like that at an aid station. I didn't overly consume like I didn't do a lot of protein during the day. Yeah. Also, my crew had two water bottles the whole time, two 20 ounce bottles. One had a one scoop of goo recovery, protein carb, the protein drink uh, with some true nitrogengen in it. and then and then I also had, which is an NAD supplement, and then and then uh, the other was uh, a scoop of Redmond Relight in the other bottle, which just electrolytes basically, and um, and I would just kind of drink on those while I was crewing, while they they would just stick it in front of me. I'd chug some, and then they would give me another, and I'd drink some more. So I maybe drink half of both of those, and then I'd drink some broth and I'd drink some coffee, and then I'd you know eat, and then I'd be moving again. So you know probably. You know, maybe threw down two or 300 calories in one setting at some of the crew spots, you know, I ate a little more heavier calories during that time. But the rest of the time I was just kind of going on liquid calories, a little bit of gels, a little bit of Boulder brand potato chips, the avocado oil ones, and some
0: salted plantain chips. Uh, yeah, what, were, what were you using? You were using Redmond Realite. Were you using S-caps? Were you using- I used S-caps
1: and goo roctane paint. as my liquid nutrition. And then I took some goo gels and some goo chews
0: here and there, just kind of occasionally. Yeah, I mean, you use more in the in the night when it's cooler. You'd be be just focusing on hydration during the heat of the day. Yeah, totally.
1: That was pretty much, and then Vespa every two hours. And then every once in a while I'd take an extra Vespa with crew would give me one, you know, when I was at a crew spot, they might give me an extra dose of Vespa, but I I kept Vespa going the whole time, you know, every two hours, 30 minutes before, and then every two hours. And that was my main kind of strategy the whole time. I didn't really ever have any stomach issues, no cramping, no, besides the water.
0: Obviously from your recounting of the moab 240 you your mental acuity is there because i mean here you are describing in detail the trail the conditions what was going on so you you were in the moment not only at the moment but now you know you can recall everything pretty clearly whereas you know you know there's people talk about hallucinations forgetting about sections of trail
1: yeah i was pretty i mean i was pretty with it most of the time like you, you said, know, you got I cranky
0: really, a little bit there on the- I that just got second. a little
1: pissy sometimes, man. I was just like, there was- And part of that was, one was fatigue when I wasn't caffeinating and I was like, really- Because I caffeinated about every two hours. I did some kind of caffeine every two hours during, like, you know, through, like, when I wanted to be awake and, you know, and then I would stop caffeinating when I wanted to sleep. But, you know, that was only at 167, so- Saturday afternoon I, I quit caffeinating that afternoon so I could sleep that evening but yeah that was that was my main strategy I mean I didn't really do much more than that you know besides hydration you know just drinking I probably drank a little too much like we talked about earlier I I hydrated too much on night 1 which made me retain water and then I was very conscious of it after that I really backed off on night 2 so I didn't retain any more water but I was just peeing like crazy just trying to get rid of all that fluid, it was getting annoying, you know. Where you'd be like every twenty minutes, oh, I gotta pee again, dude. Hold on, you know. And like, you know, my pacer was like, dude, you're peeing a lot. I'm like, I know. Look at, I'm trying to drop all this fluid. So yeah, that
0: happened to me in my first hundred, which was Western States in 2006, the year it got super hot. That was the year, uh, what's his name, Morrison collapsed on the track. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember that. Right, right. And that's what happened to me on ALT from the River because you know it's hot it was hot the hottest race in the history of the race and and that's how I learned exactly what I how I advised you like when the heat breaks you got to consciously back off because yeah you got to back off when the heat broke for me I was still drinking all the way up to uh the ALT aid station I picked up five pounds right that's back when they weighed you right yeah yeah and then after that literally every 10 to 15 minutes I was having to stop and pee and i got blisters and and everything else and it was just like it was just like crazy i mean from alt to 49 i was just like peeing like a racehorse on lasix yeah
1: yeah, totally
0: yeah so yeah 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 no i i i I feel your pain there and it it isn't it is annoying yeah yeah so kind of kind of recap all that because you know what what you know, in terms of that, you said you you felt metabolically fine the whole time. You were in the moment, your legs felt good. It was just probably that little bit of compensation and that hammering on your metatarsal that kind of Yeah, that up. was that was really the
1: only thing at the end was really bugging me. Like, cause one of the things I did was I, I did those pickups on Porcupine Rim and realized like, man, if my metatarsal head wasn't bothering me, like I could run right now fast. Like I could, I could hammer this thing out and put the course record even lower. And that was frustrating. I definitely was getting in my head a little bit because I was like, man, I got the legs, but I can't quite go. So that was, that was a little frustrating, you know, just that I had something else going on there. And so, uh, but overall, you know, like I felt clear and pretty good most of the time. Like that was one thing my pacers kind of chatted about was like, man, you're, you're pretty in pretty good Pretty good. Besides that, being a little, you know, not super happy, um, I definitely apologize to my buddy Derek because he was pacing me the last forty, and I, I kept. <laughs> that was when my managers was bothering me, and I was just, I was kind of like that, sighing, and I was like,
0: ah, you know, type. Well, it was good. Yeah, Derek is a patient because he's pretty chill.
1: Yeah, he's really chill. Yeah, but he'd never see, he'd never seen me that like not that angry, you know, but I was like not in a good good mental place there for a little bit, but but we just kept it rolling and and finished it out and it was fine.
0: Yeah. So you know you're doing this at age 51 now. Yes. Okay. And one of the things I think it's really germane to the audience and people that know is is like I said, you're your top five uh, arguably top five in the world in terms of the ma- 100 mile plus mountain specialty ultra running and but as i pointed out to you looking at your ultra sign up results and knowing you've done also within that you know some other things like your double ri- double rim to rim to rim uh, and a few other things wonderland route uh, attempt you're in that top five at 51 now, and most of these guys are Fifteen to twenty years younger than you, you're doing way more big events than they are. I mean, I, like I said, when you look at your ultra sign-up stuff uh, from uh, Hard Rock 2021 to Hard Rock 2022, both of which you placed fifth at, you were doing something every every six to eight weeks, something big. Yeah, I race a lot. <laughs> you, you raced. You raced a lot, uh, and and I don't. I don't think anybody else is is racing at that at that volume at that much because, you know, with with that whole thing about OFM shifting the balance of damage, recovering from the damage to focusing on the super compensation, the adaptive stress you get, the hormesis you get from that event to getting stronger, you're actually back at peaking between five and seven weeks after every big event now maybe this one might take a little longer you might be like set on more on the seven week uh to peak again but to talk about that a little bit and how you feel in that because you're in that you're sort of been in that zone for the last year and a half every five to seven yeah, i really
1: have i mean i just don't i i feel like i bounce back pretty quickly and i'm kind of motivated and ready to do something else again so I, i'm not I, i'm also not getting like the burnout mental fatigue that you sometimes get in ultras from doing too many races. Yep. Some people just get, lose their motivation, which is a sign of overtraining. Um,
0: yeah. I think that there's a, there's a lot of physiological underpinnings for the mental emotional burnout. Because agreed. I, think, I think the body really does know it's burned out.
1: Yeah. And I, so I, you know, I haven't, I felt really good. Like I just feel strong again and I, I recover pretty quickly. I think that's definitely, I mean, I, I would say this from a, if we're talking OFM and that approach, uh, I definitely notice a difference compared to my former self in in my mid, mid and early or early 40s and late 30s. I definitely recover way faster and um, bounce back faster on OFM. I see well, that. And that's, in-
0: certainly, that's certainly not because of age, because everybody knows when you get older, it takes longer to recover.
1: Totally. And that's what everyone talks about is like how it takes longer to recover. But one of the things I've seen as a coach, you know, I coach a lot of OFM and a ton of my athletes are doing OFM and, and, and most of them are in their forties, fifties, and even sixties. And, Uh, And a lot of them are, are, are veteran ultra runners or have been around the sport a while. And, you know, they're getting older and they're not recovering and they're gaining weight. And they, they're just like, they're coming to me to like, kind of really focus on this OFM thing and try it out. And once they try it out, they're like, wow, the recovery on this is amazing. And, and to get that consistent message over and over and over again, it's really consistent. Like, especially with those Anyone who's a veteran ultra runner or somebody who's been around the block a little bit and knows or what ultra they feel endurance, like, like
0: yeah, ultra endurance, yeah, yeah, they, they, know what marathon. What,
1: they know what they feel like after a hundred miler or a 50 miler or 100k, and or, when they or even a
0: marathon, I mean, most people doing high carb on a marathon or take a month off,
1: yeah, and so like I'm seeing people just bounce back really fast, I'm seeing them, you know, get get down to get lean again in their, in their sixties or their, I, I, you know, I've even had, I've even had an athlete, you know, say, uh, I didn't think I could get this lean at 60 in my sixties, you know? So, and, you know, even had a wife in the background, cause I was on speakerphone um, in the background say, thanks, Jeff Browning, you know, cause they got, got her husband lean again. Like he wasn't didn't have a gut anymore. So, you know, like there's there's this huge auxiliary benefit to to this lifestyle shift of just feeling clear headed, consistent energy, weight maintenance. As you know, we all gain a little weight as we get older. That's kind of like the norm for people. And on OFM, we don't see, I don't see that. Yeah. I would I would say this. I, I do coach my, my female athletes a little differently on OFM. We, we have a different approach, a little higher carb. I do a little more fuel separation method with them, you know, separating their carbs and fats more. Protein's a constant. The other thing I do coach is a higher protein approach. Um, for all my athletes, they do do, you know, traditionally higher protein than would be recommended on a keto approach. So, and we use keto as a tool. Yeah, I right? would. Not a keto listen. athlete.
0: Right. We need to frame that, really, because there's a lot of misconceptions. The first thing people uh, associate OFM with is keto. You yeah. And I think there's from. a
1: lot of people get kind of chronic keto. When they start going keto, they get kind of carb phobic if they've done it for a while. And then they and then they're, you know, they're really worried about their carb intake every day. And, and then they're trying to run ultras. And, and that there's, that's a bad combination. We use keto, and I would say this, we use ketogenic strategically. So it's, it's yeah, an initial yeah. reset. I,
0: I would go even further, Jeff, because what I'm finding is the, the traditional ketogenic macros don't work. So, and, and, and I use diet, you, you use diet as a tool, just like I use diet as a tool, like with the women, you car, you separate the the different macros out a little bit and so the way I frame it is OFM is a fat burning program it's not a high fat diet exactly it's it's you know yes fats play into it big but this set I I I don't see I've in my own personal use I've never seen 70 or 80 percent fat macros no 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 me either And, and and, and I I
1: don't really, I don't coach that either. So I'm not coaching 70%. You know, I did play around with that when I, in my early shifting and and in my own diet. And I found that I upped my, I ended up naturally upping my protein macros. My protein's really high. And, and then my fat, you know, it's more probably 30% protein and, and, 50% 50% fat and like 20% carbohydrate is probably more my macro combos when I look at it. It,
0: it shifts around because like when you're getting ready for a race, your, your carb macro will rise, your fat macro will go down. Protein, like you say, is relatively constant, but there's there's yep. times when it, it gets low. Like like when you're racing, when you're out there racing, those days you're racing, whether it's a 100 or a 200 or a 50K, that day you might, you know, 90% of your intake may just be carbs.
1: Yeah, exactly. It'll be just, yeah, exactly. It'll be just mainly simple carbs and some complex carbs like potatoes or something. But yeah, fruit. But like you're not, you're not going.
0: But um, you're, but but in terms of that day, you're still burning eighty percent of your fuel or more is coming from fat.
1: Yeah, so yeah. It's a fat, exactly. it's a fat
0: burning program rather than a high fat diet. And I think people get get instantly they instantly pigeonhole OFM into that. And It's like what we're trying to do is optimize that fat metabolic fat burning capacity and and you know like i said at the beginning what's important about this is everybody gets you know right now everybody's you know they all want to see the science right and i like to you know we're we're trying to develop some data i've got i'm talking to some people about doing some studies there was the faster study but that was focused more on the ketogenic diet than than the whole ofm and the vespa components which You know, with the data we've gotten in the various tests you've done, the testing we did in February clearly shows that there's a whole lot more on the, that that faster left a lot on the table in terms of.
1: Well, it it just shows that you don't have to be ketogenic to be a super high fat burner for a while. Well,
0: well, exactly. But but the, the data we're getting shows that you can actually burn more fat on OFM, which includes the Vespa. Than you then you can on a straight keto diet because remember the peak the average was 1.64 and the high was 1.78 and faster that was peak fat oxidation and you know you've seen over two you, you and peter are able to sustain over two grams a minute for like 10 15 minutes yeah i mean that's that's data nobody's ever seen and and back to the whole recovery thing the 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 mental shift or aha moment people need to make in this and you you certainly know this from an experiential level is it's not that you actually recover faster it's because you haven't done the damage you need to recover from right right and and i think
1: that's i think that's an important piece that i i think uh at least at least my experience is that you know and and i have to say this and sometimes when people are like, well, what's the mechanism, you know, and and we've, we've talked with Jason Coop about this too. And, and what's, what's the exact mechanism? It's at the end of the day, for me, it's like, I don't, I'm not a scientist. So I I don't really care what the mechanism is.
0: You You are are a, you are a scientist. You're experimenting on yourself. Well, what, what
1: I'm saying, what I'm saying is, what I mean by that, my point here is that I, I don't really care what the mechanism is. What I'm getting is consistent data from my athletes that says I recover faster. My experience is that I recover faster, and I've been an ultra runner for X amount of years, and I've done this X amount of hundreds and ultras, and I recover fa- way faster. I have less inflammation, and I bounce back, and I'm able to maintain body, like good, good, healthy body weight. And all of those things. And, and, and so whatever that mechanism is, I don't care if it's, you're doing less the oxidative stress to the system initially, you know, just in general, or whether it's a cleaner fuel, it doesn't matter what the mechanism is. I'm seeing the same experience over and over and over again. And I think that's the important piece of this is that at the end of the day, People want to feel better. They want to recover fast. And if you can recover faster, you can train more, you can train better, and you're going to feel better. And that's what matters is that you feel better and that you're recovered and you're not inflamed. And if you can keep your inflammatory response down, you're going to perform better. You're going to feel better. You're going to recover faster and you're going to be back to training faster and your mental state's going to be in a better place. So I think there's a, you know, we can get into the weeds, but at the end of the day, that's what really matters to people. That, that everyday ultra runner out there, the middle of the back of the pack, at ultra runners, and the people who just want to do this as a lifestyle, it, it matters that we recover and we can keep doing what we love to do.
0: Well, and that, but that's, that's, that's exactly my point. You, you're an applied scientist. I'm an applied scientist. We're, we're taking the science and applying it, okay? And so those mechanisms help us to understand that better, right? And that's the thing. It's like when you can burn more fat and we know this because when people are doing OFM, which includes using Vespa, it's like, like you and I both know if you're doing just low level recovery level work or, or mid level range work, it's, it's, it's almost stupid how long you can go on Vespa salt and water.
1: Yeah. But- yeah. Peter, Peter and I talk about that a lot. Uh, Pete Mortimer and I like, cause he'll go out and do like four or five hour runs on just salt and water and Vespa. And I'll do that sometimes too on my my, training where I'll hardly do any calories and I'll just do Vespa. And and just in one, I feel like it's really honing your metabolism, your fat metabolism more and it's pushing it to a higher level.
0: It's sort of like an accelerated fast.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that's an important piece. But then there's also days where, you know, where, where we go back to this conversation about you know, people getting kind of chronic keto and, and, and worrying about their carbs. Like there's days when I come off a long run, I'm going to eat like 200 grams of carbs that day. And, Absolutely. And, and it's going to be from good sources. It's going to be from fruit. I mean, go try to eat 200 grams of fruit, carbs from fruit. That's a lot of fruit. And so you can eat a lot of fruit that's very nutrient dense. You know, I think that's another thing that's really important piece of, of the OFM diet right, of the OFM approach, is that we're eating extremely nutrient-dense foods. Like, we're, we're there's not a lot of wasted calories, you know? You're, no. you're, you're eating really, really nutrient-dense
0: bioavailable. It's real, it's real food.
1: Yeah, animal products, some raw dairy. For me, it's animal products, raw dairy, fruit, and vegetables. I mean, that's my main diet. And occasionally diet.
0: potatoes or rice, right? Yeah,
1: and occasionally potatoes or rice. But but really, and I, and, and probably potatoes way more than rice. Like I maybe eat rice like once a month, but I, I I eat potatoes multiple times a week. I eat fruit every day. So my, and I, and I would even look at it. I was just talking to an athlete yesterday. If we're going to put my food, my food into a pyramid, right? The first half base of it, of that pyramid would be animal products. So that would be fish, fowl, eggs, uh uh red meat, red meat raw dairy. I eat a lot of raw, raw red meat, raw dairy and, and cultured dairy and raw cheese and all that kind of stuff and cultured well, and
0: you, and you and you eat the whole animal. I mean, And you, I eat the whole
1: animal. Like my wife made liver pâté yesterday, so I've had liver, I God. had liver yesterday. Yeah. You know, and we do bone broths and all kinds of stuff. And so that's probably my bottom half of the foundation of what I do. And then the other, the next part of that pyramid would be fruit, fruit and starches like potatoes and white rice and stuff like that. And then the yeah, last you little you pyramid peak at the top for me is vegetables. So they're last on my list. Vegetables are the least focused. And I think one of the cool things that's come out of carnivore, the carnivore movement is this discussion, and I think Paul Saladino does a really good job. Dr. Paul Saladino does a good job of bringing this up. He he brings the discussion points towards the toxic load of vegetables, which never is discussed in the mainstream uh, nutrition. And, and we never talk about the toxic load is of grains. Now, grains get some discussion in within paleo and primal blueprint circles. They get that. That is a talking point. Like grains have, you know, lectins and, and phytic acid and that kind of stuff that's blocking nutrient absorption and that kind of stuff in your gut. But we don't really talk about the toxic load of kale or the toxic load of spinach. So, oh
0: God, don't even don't even get me started. The primary if you look at the primary literature on studies they've done on kale feeding it to ruminants, it's. It's a horror story.
1: Right. And it's so because, high in oxalates that. Um, yeah, it's a,
0: it's a nutrient binder. It actually takes nutrition out of your body.
1: Yeah. And so that's where I I, I think I love that discussion point that's been brought up by the carnivore movement now. And, and that's why I, I one of the reasons that I've shifted my approach a little bit in OFM to be in that pyramid I just talked about. It's animal based with You know, and and I personally care about the environment. I personally care about like what we're doing to the environment. And if you really dig into the literature and the real, the real science behind this, the grain industry (laughs) and the, and the, and the monoculture vegetable industry are ruining the planet. They've, they've, they've knocked us out of our natural ecosystem because what should be there is ruminants. What should be on all that farmland is actually grassland or, or, or wetland.
0: Yeah. 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 Alan Savory has been the the real pioneer of this with his holistic management. And uh, the the thing I want to posit to people out there who are more plant-based or, or kind of looking at this about, uh, and listening to us talk about animal products. The thing I'd like to posit as a biologist is, is, is you really got to look at it as the cycle of life. And when you look at natural systems, there's this cycle and ruminants play a critical part of that cycle the biome of the earth that processes the feces and urine that they they do to so that the plants can get it in the sunlight growing the plants the ruminants eating the plants the predators hunting the ruminants it all feeds into this this constant cycle and what's happened is we humans have disrupted that cycle at various places and um, especially
1: with monoculture
0: absolutely Absolutely. And we both we both come from agricultural background, So we're well, we're well familiar with it, right? And we, up can do, we can do a lot a lot better by by restoring that cycle of life uh, or mimicking nature by cycle of life. And that's what Alan Savory's done with his work, because he saw that culling all these animals off the savannas of Africa actually made the problem worse better yeah, totally. and then and,
1: and i think the, the there's been a study at, uh, like uh there's been a study out of the university of michigan and there's been a study in white oak farms in in uh, georgia i think is where it is and and yeah. that's that's showing like uh if you have a grass-fed grass-finished herbivores like cattle on grass where they're supposed to be on grass not putting yep. grains in their mouth but putting them on grass they actually grow we're growing soil we're creating a giant carbon sink and and we are we are actually
0: there's a net net carbon sequestration going on the, the
1: sequestering of carbon is going on during that life cycle and you're actually offsetting the entire life cycle of the animal and it's actually carbon negative so it's like really an interesting thing when you really dig into it another good book out there for people listening would be sacred cow by diana rogers and uh who's a registered dietitian and uh 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 hold on, I'm da- drawing a blank on the other author, uh, Rob Wolf, um, who wrote Paleo Solution. He, They're co-authors on that book and there's also a documentary on on the same name. Interestingly, the mainstream doesn't want to carry it like Netflix and stuff because they don't want that narrative out there, but um, because it, it messes up the vegetarian narrative that keeps the, keeps well, the big- Well, it,
0: it, it actually messes up the big money that's going into uh, this monoculture ag you're talking about, for the alternative meat products, which are highly lucrative. And, yeah, it's highly
1: lucrative. When you process something, you make a lot of overhead. It, there's not a lot yeah. of overhead, so they make a really good profit margin on this, that, that type of stuff.
0: Well, and that's a lot of the reason why the benefits of, of, of meat don't get out there is the margins are so slim on production, and this is part of the reason that's driven the factory farming the way it has. And, and we've got to get back to more margins so that people can get the better nutrition, but also be able to make the money to where they can educate people on the benefits of, of having some meat. And, and And that brings me to a good point though. I've coached some some very high level masters uh, athletes who are vegetarian, but they were very, they weren't vegan, but they were vegetarian. So they're ovo lacto. And one of the things I've observed working with these super high level athletes, you know, your level elite masters athletes is when you get that balance of animal nutrition, right? So they were, they were so focused on their athletic performance that they were willing to make some small compromises in their, their vegetarianism. So as soon as we got the liver capsules and the gelatin capsules into their dietary stuff, their performance went through the roof, their injuries disappeared. You know, their chronic issues, challenges disappeared. And that got me thinking that, you know, with with regard to the meat, especially for those who are environmentally concerned and and tilting more towards that plant-based diet, when you do this properly and source it properly, the amount of animal products you actually need is surprisingly small. And I think the carnivore uh, movement has kind of gone off the rails a little bit because you see all this chest pounding about eating two to four pounds of meat a day and yeah. it's mostly muscle meat and it's like like i know from myself i mean if i'm not super active eight ounces of, of grass-fed hamburger and a couple of eggs is like that's my protein for the day and my body says you got plenty
1: yeah and i you know from from an athletic perspective like at, at my level i need a lot more protein a day so i eat a decent amount more than that for sure but but i but i would argue that you can if you're if you're sourcing your protein sources from pretty good sources meaning as local as you can get or regional as you can get and that and that's as simple as like doing some google searching and finding a grass-fed grass-finished beef operation where you're buying a quarter of beef and putting it in a freezer. I mean, that's or, what or I chi- Or
0: chickens that are running around eating grubs and dead animals and everything else. Yeah,
1: totally. I think yeah. if you can support that one, you're voting with your dollars. You're actually voting environment. When you do that, when you vote a reason, when you go buy from a local rancher, you're actually, that situation is they are putting animals ruminants on what they're intended to be on and on, and they're supporting a carbon sequestering. So if they, if you are doing that, you are supporting the environment. And, and I, I want to, I really want to encourage people to read, like read Sacred Cow, look into Alan Savory's work. I, I if you really care about the environment, look into that stuff because that's the natural way the planet was designed was giant grasslands, not a bunch of corn, soybeans, and wheat. So, yeah, it's
0: part of that cycle of life, and we yes. and, and humans and, and, have disrupted that, and there's been unintended consequences as a result.
1: Absolutely, which is not good for the environment. It's not good for our planet, and and so that and it's not good for us to eat. Uh, you know, we're not supposed to consume corn, soybeans, and wheat all the time. You know, maybe occasionally you could eat some corn, but like you're really not supposed to be eating much wheat, and you're really not supposed to be. I mean, that's a famine food. If you look at the history of humans, and, and, and you really do dig into it we we store it was it was to store for times of lean and that was the only reason we were became farmers in the first place was to get through famines
0: so well i i'll I'll disagree with you on that because agriculture and the, the consolidation of power and wealth was based through agriculture and all this but when you look at hunter gatherers which is most of our existence I wouldn't say it was feast and famine for most of the population. There was isolated famines, but I would call it more feasting and fasting, just like a lion does. When a okay, lion I, somebody, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, also for people, this is something everybody can do in their everyday life. So on the other end of the spectrum, if, if your budget doesn't allow you to do that, you can shop, shop this, the sales at the supermarket because they use meat as a loss leader. Uh, meat and chicken, meat and poultry, and pork are, are loss leaders. Eggs, eggs, liver, things like that—they they literally give away uh, produce in season. These are these are all strategies you can do on a budget. It's not like you, you can you can actually. I posit that if you're if you're intelligent, and know how to shop for your protein and your and your foods. They subsidize dairy heavily. These things don't cost you any more than the what are called uh, economy foods like beans and rice i i would posit that a lot of those kind of foods are actually more expensive not just in the actual cost but also in your health and stuff if you start doing that if you're on a budget so if you're on a budget you know things like like i said meat and poultry and pork is as a loss leader shop the sales produce in season eggs eggs no they're not the best eggs out there but but when you look at store bought eggs they're still for what you're getting, they're a bargain. Livers. Well, are that's bargained. one of the
1: things that why I bring up the, the book Sacred Cow, because one of the things they go into in that book is that when you look at it from a health perspective, if it's commercially grown, like more commercially grown or again or 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 uh a grain fed grown versus like grass fed, it really like from a nutrient
0: perspective. The, the nutritional profile is clearly better. No, no, no doubt about it. All I'm saying,
1: no, 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 wait let me finish the nutrient yep. profile really isn't that different it, it, that's one thing they couldn't make a big argument on they wanted to be truthful and they yep. they couldn't make a big argument on the nutrient piece of it but they could on the environmental piece and that's where your argument for like grass-fed grass finished is even better now yes the nutrient profile and grass-fed grass finished versus grain fit finished um, beef it, it say for example if we're talking beef right let's just talk steak it, it yep. The nutrient profile isn't that different. It's got a little more omega-6s in the grain. Fed. Yeah, it's
0: got the conjugated linoleic acids are a little it's higher in the grass.
1: at crazies yeah. from a health perspective. But when, as an argument, if we want to debate an argument and have an, yeah. a, a debate argument. But if you get into the... The environmental uh, impact. The environmental, inca- the environmental side. Off. Yeah. It, it, there's a huge cost to grain finished and grain. Because there's a ton of like, diesel fuel and tractor use and transportation and yeah plastic.
0: they're not capturing they're in the in the way we conventionally raise animals right now they're not capturing the total cost
1: no and and they don't ingrain when they when they talk grain your 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 footprint in grain they don't do they don't compare apples to apples when they can compare say say uh meat production versus like grain production. They don't include the whole life cycle of grain production. So they don't, it's, you got to dig into the data to really understand that they're trying to manipulate. They're trying to manipulate the public into thinking that eating grains are better for the environment than eating meat. And it's not.
0: Well, and that's, that's my point. So if you're on a budget or convenience and you can't, you know, you're in an urban area you know, if you shop the sales and get, get these things, you, you can do it cheap because the grains, like you say, they're they're not capturing the full price. And when you buy the, the grains, even when you're buying in bulk, you know, like rice and beans, uh, they seem cheap on the, the front, but when you're when you're not satiated, you're eating more, and then you gotta eat take this or this vitamin because you're not getting that nutrition. Well, Natural not to cost- mention.
1: We aren't even talking about bioavailability, right? That's the yes. nutrients in that food, right? Beans and rice is like 40 some percent bioavailable, whereas the six ounce steak is like 92% bioavailable. But the, car, the
0: carbs are 100% bioavailable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they go right to your waist. They go um, right to your into your bloodstream and to your liver. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and you jack your blood sugar up. Um, right. And then you so, have an
1: insulin issue.
0: So so the, the, the point I'm making is, you 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 not only if you do it intelligently you can you can actually do Agreed. you can do it on a budget uh that, that's similar to any kind of uh economic but the standard man, budget but you'll save money but you're also going to save huge on the, on the health consequences downstream right yeah. i mean you see that with yeah. your Athletes, when they get converted from the high carb diet to the OFM. Who's
1: doing a really good job of getting that message out is Dr. Paul Saladino. If anybody wants to follow him on Instagram, I think it's CarnivoreMD2.0. And, and he's not doing strict carnivore. He calls it 2.0, where he's using fruit, raw dairy. Really, he's kind of doing OFM. And, and, and I think that looking at, he's had some posts on just eating that way on a budget that he does a really good job of like getting that date out. If anybody wants to follow him. Yeah.
0: And, and, and as far as the vegetables are concerned, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a vegetables are optional, but for a lot of people, they work really well. So if you cook them like, like salad, cause lettuce is really not that harmful to, unless until you start adding kale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: Romaine I- and, and arugula are the two like least amount of anti-nutrients in them as far as leaf lettuces go.
0: Yeah. I mean, and your iceberg lettuce is just water with a little bit of fiber exactly. holding it together. Right. <laughs> so those things, those things you can eat raw, but a lot of vegetables, a lot of those, those issues go away when you cook them. So if you like vegetables, this isn't a, a thing, don't eat them. It's it's just that those, those, the things that, uh, that um, Jeff are talking about, like the lectins, the phytates, all these things that, plants use literally as chemical well wa- 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 chemical warfare to keep animals from eating them uh, get get dissoluted so so you know you know enjoy your vegetables because your non-starchy vegetables are a good way to attenuate your hunger because they they got more volume than they have calories and nutrition it's mostly fiber and water
1: yeah and I agree with that I'm not saying don't eat vegetables I'm just I I, I I guess I should clarify that. I still eat vegetables. I just, I don't, I don't over consume vegetables and I care about the sort, which, which vegetable I eat and how I prep them. Cause you need to, you need to prep them appropriately. And when you know that, like you're talking about, you know, you break down some of those, those chemical compounds that are Kind of toxic to you um, by the cooking process or the prep process, you know, whether that's fermenting, whether it's sautéing or or baking or or however yeah. you
0: fermentation is probably the best way. But but you're you're absolutely yeah. right, and and also that's uh, you bring up a good point though. Like I say, vegetables are optional. People need to be aware that if they're having some sort of issue, inflammatory response and stuff the first place to look is is vegetables a lot of people are, are genetically predisposed to having inflammation from things like corn or wheat especially the gluten in the modern wheat a lot of new world plants like eggplant potatoes uh uh tomatoes nightshades. Yeah, nightshades. So new world, the salad the, the, a lot of people have sal- salicylate uh allergies just genetically and so those are things that 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 you have to kind of watch for but but when you cook them or or prep them right uh and if you enjoy them it, you know it's certainly something to be an option so we we, we don't want to sound like we're bagging on it and and yeah the but the base nutrition the, the most dense and dense nutrition and bioavailable comes from your animal products because that's literally what our digestive tracts uh have evolved to 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 be it's like i say we're, we're omnivorous carnivores we're not a true carnivore like a bear or a pig those are digest from a digestive tract thing that bears and pigs are true omnivores they can go either way to the extreme or in the middle uh, yep. and do fine where where you know even even the really good vegan nutritionists i've read a lot of the there's some vegan nutritionists who i really respect because they get it and they're the first ones to say you can't get all your nutrition off a plant-based diet you have to supplement with b vitamins you have to supplement with your omega th- your dha and epa omega-3s you know they're really clear about what you got to do to make it work yeah yeah so and finally let's let's talk about talk a little bit about your vespa use and, and all that i mean you said you use vespa pretty religiously for two hours got a booster here and there um, yeah
1: um i i you know, that's, if I look at stuff that I, I wouldn't race without, <laughs> Vespa is definitely one of those, I, you know, as a, and I, and I would, I would, you know, a lot of people, I get a lot of questions on how to use Vespa like this through Instagram and stuff like that. So I think it's good to kind of clarify usage and how to use it, use it. You use it in addition to your carb drip of calories during a race or wrong run or uh, big adventures, so it's more of like, a, think of it more like a supplement than it is like replacing everything. It's not a gel necessarily. So it's, I use it every two hours, you know, 30 minutes before, and then every two hours in addition to my carb calorie drip that I'm taking. So my glucose strip of whatever I'm using. So for me, it's goo roctane. I have some athletes that are using, you know, scratch or tailwind or something like that. And so just, just um, using it kind of as a, uh, supplement. Now I so also sort of like
0: your ba- it sort of helps create that internal base base fuel load.
1: Yeah. And in the, t- in the initial testing we've seen, we've seen some like bumps in fat, fat oxidation rates from Vespa compared to baseline, facet baseline. And we've seen that across the board, even in high carb athletes in some initial testing. So I, 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 I do encourage my athletes eat no matter what, how they eat to have Vespa as part of their like nutritional strategy. The other thing I I, I encourage them to do is in training, if they start using Vespa, start backing off on their calories per hour a little bit, just a little bit at first, like, you know, 10 to 30%, try it, try it, even back off a little more 40% and see what, see how that feels. And if they need to bump that up a little bit, but what you'll find is most people will be able to back off on their overall hourly calories if they're supplementing Vespa in there too, um, which which then offsets the cost of the Vespa too. So then you're 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 and you're bumping up your fat oxidation rates, which is really good for recovery. So uh, so like I think using it that way. The other way I use it is. Uh, I use it on my harder days, like in my shorter workouts. So I use the concentrates, the little ones, for like long runs every two hours, like during racing, because they're small and they're really easy to to pack. They're smaller than yeah, a gel. Yeah, you can
0: pa- you can pack all all you need for a, for a twenty four hour run.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're super small packets. They're like two thirds the size of a gel packet. So I, I use those the concentrates during training and during racing um, because they're small. You just got to chase a little water with them. And then, and they're more concentrated in the in the amino acid peptide, the wasp extract. And then the the other piece of this that I use it for, I use CB twenty fives a lot. The ones that already have like the filtered water in it. I use those for like I'm gonna go do a two hour run, but I don't want calories. I just want to do salt, salt salt and water, or like you know sodium water, electrolytes and water on a two hour run or something. I'll pop a CB twenty five before I go, and then I won't carry any any calories. Um, and, and then you can hammer or if I'm doing a harder workout so if I'm doing speed work I always take a Vespa you know before I head out
0: um like yeah. 30 minutes before. The, the way I advise people is is take a Vespa for your long stuff you know and use it if you're going out for more than two hours you have to take it every two hours and then you know take it for your harder workouts or higher quality workouts do a warm-up and the way I describe it and you probably know this from your experience, the way I describe it to people, because like with the long stuff, you know, you're getting a benefit of the Vespa because you're not, your, your, your caloric intake is either drastically reduced or nothing. Right. Uh, But in the harder stuff, the way I describe it is as long as you're not fatigued or something else isn't bothering you, you'll consistently feel like when the difficulty of the workout pushes against you, you feel like you can push back, back rather than just hang on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I definitely uh, that, and that's how I've always leveraged it. I, I also use the Vespa Juniors with my my eleven year old and my son. Um, my oldest son was USA competitive climbing for a few years. He's now twenty, so he's not not competing and climbing anymore. But at the, when he was, we started giving him Vespa before meets before like matches or like when they're doing bouldering contests or 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 lead climbing depending on the time of the season what they were doing what they're focusing on but i mean he just felt more on like more focused he could because it's very very mentally intensive too because it's blind climb so you have to go you know back against the wall you can't see the route until that you only have four minutes to climb so they 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 ring a bell and you stand up and turn around and look at the route and you have four minutes, the timer's on. And you have as many tries as you can to get to the top in four minutes. Um, but you have to take that time at that first, like 20 seconds or 30 seconds to go boom, boom. Okay. I think that's my moves, moves, envision the moves and then go do it. And he just felt really on, on it. And so he got to the point where he was like, I, he didn't want to do the route without it, you know, like do a, a, a competition without it. He always was like, when we were walking out the door, do you, do I need Vespa, you know? So he, he noticed a difference in, in, in mental focus and in clarity. And, and, My,
0: and the motor skills, right? And motor, motor skills. skills, exactly.
1: And then the, yeah. other, the other way I use it, I have an 11 year old who likes to run. And I just, you know, I use Vespa Jr. for him before we go to like run club. And the one of the things I noticed just, this is just, this is just observational data. But when I give him a Vespa, if I forget to give him one, he kind of has a crappy attitude. But if I give him a best with junior, he is like on. He wants to run. He's really good attitude for the, for the run club. And sometimes they do you know interval workouts and stuff like that, which he likes to do. He thinks it's fun. But, but like he does them for that. Or the other way I use it is I'm doing a, like a longer adventure. I just took him up uh, Mount Eldon, which is a 2300 foot climb. It's a five and a half miles round trip. It's super technical, uh, it's our it's our peak next to Flagstaff. And I took him up it uh, on Friday. It's the first time he's ever summited it. And I took two juniors, I gave him one before, and then I brought just plant or uh, uh, Boulder brand potato chips with a little, so he had a little sodium and I gave him one S cap. And then I carried all the water and I carried all the calories. And all I had to do was give him a little bit of calories here and there. And, and I gave him the juniors and he was like, boom, boom on, 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 on the whole time, never had a low, never had a bad attitude, was super chatty the whole time. Like we zoomed up and down it in two hours and 10 minutes. Great. And, and, and the only thing that was getting him is right at the end. It was all the downhill, like big drop-offs on the rocks. Like his legs were starting to feel it, you know, cause he just didn't have that kind of like eccentric training on his legs. But, but like he loved it and he had a great time and he had a good attitude. And I just kind of strategically gave him <laughs> Vespa and a little bit of calories, didn't even need many calories at all. But it, it's more to like, they're just like kids love the snacks
0: and it's like a perk. So the potato chips were a perk, right? And but they, using the Vespa with just that little perk is a whole lot better than what the sports nutrition for kids athletic has become i mean I, I i go to these things with my kids and i see what they're giving them it's like oh my god this is just setting them off on the wrong trajectory
1: yeah exactly so anyway that's kind of my you know my personal use cases of how i use the product i think it's in you know it's definitely a, a integral part of my nutritional strategy and and racing and training
0: yeah just as a side jeff uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I summited Whitney, and then two weeks before that, I summited Whitney. So I did two two Whitney summits within two weeks, and they're both pretty fast ascents. Uh, but those were fasted, best basalt and water. Right. And I was the first one was out there for nine hours. The second one we were out there for like 14 because the guy I went up with uh, kind of overextended his knee, and it took a long time to get down. But but had no lows, just felt awesome. You yeah. know, and it was just Vespa salt and water, and, and you know, Whitney's uh, 6,300 foot of elevation gain loss.
1: Another way I, I like to um, tell people who aren't, aren't familiar with the product, I, and we've been joking about this, me and Nick Curry and Pete Mortimer, we call it the Vespa Challenge. For, <laughs> and that is carry some Vespa, don't use it, and just carry it during a race. And if you have a low, pop a Vespa and, and drink a little water with it. And, and I guarantee that it will, you will feel a lot better 10 or 15 minutes and you'll be like on all of a sudden and feel really great. And you won't even need that many calories. So, or, or if you're having trouble getting calories down, you know, like just pop Vespa. And so that's what we call the Vespa challenge jokingly. And, and I think that's kind of, you know, that's Nick Curry's original kind of use case that was his
0: first time using it was he had it on him and he got desperate at that uh yeah he couldn't use his room. hands
1: so he couldn't take gels he couldn't take his calories he had really cold hands you know like where you get where you can't use your hands anymore during a 50 mile race and he ended up like having a friend had given him some vespa and he had a, a volunteer actually at like at, i don't know maybe mile 28 or yeah, something yeah. like took it out of his pack put it in his mouth and and, and like, he didn't do any calories and he just went on Vespa and, and he said, his, you know, he normally would have bonked bad because he was a high carb athlete at the time. And he realized that like, wow, I have consistent energy and I haven't had any calories. Like, what the heck is this stuff?
0: Yeah, um, he was super skeptical too, prior to that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, that's kind of how I use it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks for this conversation. Anything, any Final closing comments on 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 you know how far you've come and Moab 240 and and what, what you got I, going on what what do you got next? Well, before I, mean, I, you, my, I signed up for
1: well I I sent an email and I got an invitation to Desert Solstice Invitational in the 24 hour in December. So as long as my metatarsal is okay, I'm planning on being on 24 hours on the track in Phoenix in December. So I've never done that before. It's totally, that's going to
0: be a challenge for you.
1: It's out of my wheelhouse. I've never done it. And I, I kind of just wanted to do it to try it and see what it's like. I'll probably never do another one after this, but that's, that's what I have on on the plan. And if if my metatarsal head is like kind of still aggravated and I can't really get back, you're going to pass. If it's a limiting factor, then I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll not show up there and probably do something like something. I'm, I, I'm looking at Coldwater Rumble, 100 miler in January in Phoenix as a 100 miler to do. So that might be a backup plan. I don't know yet, but I just yeah, entered right. the lottery for Hard Rock again. So hopefully I get picked in the lottery
0: again. I got a lot of tickets, so uh, we'll see yeah well and uh as a shout out to era vampire running i mean i i've done a couple of the uh, across the years runs i never thought in my life i'd do a run like that but they put on such a good event that i'm like this isn't bad at all
1: no it's kind of fun it's really social i think that's what's cool about these loop courses or even the you know the multi like the 24 hour time stuff like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested to try it. I wanted to do something where I didn't have to worry about logistics and crew and getting friends to try to show up. My wife's just going to go down there and hang out, hang out at the, at the, at the track and, you know, crew for me. And, and so it should be pretty simple. And yeah, it's the,
0: vi- the vibe is just so good at that. Thing. And then of course, uh, I'm hoping to put together some more testing in January, or February. Cool. You know, somewhere around there and, 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 Kind of get the protocol, you know, we'll have to get together and nut and, and out some protocol because I want to get some distance. I want to do some blinding and I want to space out the uh, testing so that we can get both recovered because, one, you know, the things I saw, the takeaways from that testing were this. You and Peter are living at 7,000 feet and training anywhere from 7,000 to 12,000 to sea level. That's a big lever in the fat adaptation Yeah, that's one big tool is that that altitude acclimatization. Uh, That's what that's one of the one of the reasons you guys were able to burn over two grams a minute consistently. The other but the other thing that I noticed was just how big an impact doing back to back testing has. I mean, you burn some matches, especially ultra runners not being able to not being accustomed to going that high. I think Jason made a comment in the interview with me like you you can't account for that, but I I'd have to say the data is pretty consistent that for ultra runners, you can't do back-to-back VO2 tests and not have an impact. I think
1: Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm just interested to see what we've talked about in the past as, as a different protocol. I think there's other protocols out there that we could do that would be interesting to see. I'd like I'd also like to see some longer longer three-hour efforts
0: on a treadmill you know well it's like if we can get this thing going i mean put it this way jeff you know the data we got uh particularly on you and peter but the data we got on everybody there's no other data out there like that
1: You yeah not two plus grams a minute
0: no yeah there's nobody out there doing two plus grams it's not
1: that i've heard of if well, watching, no,
0: nobody nobody's got it i mean if, if they had it jason would have said something right yeah he they're said seeing
1: no, yeah. 1.2 1.3 grams a minute yeah. as a max even in some like high volume uh car hot carb athletes that they're seeing some higher fat gra- you know that's yeah. it's not it's not super common but it's happening right we've seen those we can say there's those numbers i'm not seeing anyone that's over two grams a minute so right um, and and
0: and the impacts of this are huge not just for performance but but on a on a cellular mitochondrial level but for for longevity i mean the longevity thing the more you're in beta oxidation which is the true fat burning state ketosis is actually a byproduct it's a proxy because you can measure it but um, the more you're in 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 that fat burning state the less oxidative stress the less lactate load the more your your body's processing cholesterol for what it needs to be done because cholesterol's the building block for our entire cells you know it carries the proteins it carries all those fatty acids the more robust you are and and i think that that's where the real impact for longevity and reversing chronic diseases or preventing them comes from and then the other little thing, uh, as we close this out, that I want to repeat to people, uh, going for us going into winter, and you know this as well as I do, uh, is is just preventing the the common cold, the influenza, and that other thing that nobody wants to talk about. And and, and here it is, and, and I'll go to a very basic part of virology that people have forgotten, but it's just basic, and nobody even argues about it. And virologists won't argue about this because it's, it's established science. It's that. Viral strands replicate glycolytically, which means they have to have, your cells have to be metabolizing glucose to cause viral replication. And this is why the studies are showing that people who are fat burners aren't as impacted. And, and that's why, you know, like you probably noticed since you went, got fat adapted, you just don't get sick in the winter, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do every once in a while, but usually it's because I'm uh, going, going down
1: to the and training. And yeah. so your, your immune system's knocked down a little bit, but it, I even notice it like with my family. Cause I have three kids, like it'll go through my family and sometimes I won't even get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially if I'm being, and, and if it's going through my house, I'm like, especially since COVID, I'm just more educated on like the viral replication process, you know? And so like, I'm more conscious of it. Like when I see who's getting sick, I'm like, you know, I'm using a, a like a, that, that, clear which is like that xylitol you know like nasal spray i'm using that to clean my nasal passages out because that's where your first replication starts is in your nasal and back of your throat so like i'm cleaning that stuff out right that's some of the work that dr peter McColl has been doing and showing that like if you just do that right when you know you've been in contact with um that's sick the the other is just you know i always go really low carb and higher protein low carb during even if I'm in tra- hard training, I'll just go take my protein higher during that, during that when there's something going around in my house. So that way, I'm, I know that, that the body's going to have a harder time, like, or that virus is going to have a harder yep. time getting a foothold because it's, it's, it doesn't have a lot of glucose to feed on.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have the environment. That's the thing. If, you're, if your cells are burning sugar, you're inviting them in to have a, a replicating orgy, literally. Yeah. And when exactly. they're burning fat, it's like this isn't this isn't a this is a hostile environment <laughs> for viral replication.
1: Yeah. And and, yeah. and so,
0: yeah. And that's the thing. When you're when you're run down, fatigued, some sort of chronic stress, of course, that triggers more cortisol, which triggers more sugar burn, which is gonna facilitate viral replication. So, you know, this all makes sense. So that's a that's just one more, you know, aspect that that of of fat metabolism that is a good time to be discussed right now as we go into um, winter. winter 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 you know get your keep your vitamin D up to proper supplementation like you say you do the vi- xylitol if you get cold take a hot epsom salt bath keep your magnesium up zinc you know but th- yeah, but this great is something-
1: Dark there's actually a great dark horse podcast Brett Weinstein's yep. podcast there's a great dark horse podcast on vitamin D I think he did it last year on, with two, he interviewed two vitamin D researchers. Really interesting on on uh, vitamin D supplementation and health, really, especially when it comes to viruses. So really interesting podcast. If anybody's interested in kind of going down that rabbit, yeah.
0: Hole. Well, as you know, you know that was one of the first things I had you do, was do the vitamin D protocol I developed back in 2008 or nine. And I did a lot of re- research uh, reading uh, Michael Hollick and some others. Michael Hollick's like the, the foremost researcher in vitamin D. And it was like, you know, unless you're doing something really proactive, you're suboptimal and probably deficient, you know. Yeah, and, especially
1: if you're inside. Um, yeah. You know, if you're inside most of the day, I mean, because you really only get vitamin D absorption when your shadow is shorter than your height. So if it's late in the afternoon or early in the morning, you're really not, even if you had skin showing, you're really not getting that much vitamin D absorption. It has to be kind of. Well, in that-
0: well and you have to have your clothes off, right? You have, more, you have to have a lot of skin showing and you have to have yep. it in the day. And then, you know, when you live above the latitude of like Monterey, California, Santa Cruz, Monterey, you don't get vitamin UVB this time of year. People just no, from know like Yeah, you don't get
1: any you get, you get yeah. nothing for like six months of the year. So yeah. you have to, you have to do some kind of supplementation. We just aren't outside as much as we used to as humans. So, and we, and we cover up. So we just don't get the absorption anymore. So it's like, I think that's a really important, and this is where it comes back to like liver and all kinds yep. of stuff, right? Cause it's high in vitamin K. You need, you, you you
0: you need, need to take absorption. the vitamin D with liver for the vitamin A, vitamin B, and the vitamin K2 that's in liver. And then you also need magnesium because our diet's pretty poor in magnesium these days.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. So cool. All right, man. This was a a great chat. Yeah. Thanks. You enjoyed it.